A lot of the greats. What do you want? Lewis Hamilton could be the greatest. It's just touching my heart. While you're at it, let's hope we come back to stop and finish. Josh, can we turn this thing off? The Apex F1 podcast. Whatever. everybody and welcome to the apex f1 podcast my name is ryan and i'm here with my co-host josh josh it's been a pretty lame week i don't think so there's been just the excitement that we're waiting for you know like working on our stuff getting our followers up we only got six more people until we reach our hundred so i mean it might be lame and news wise but everything's looking up for us yeah absolutely i know it's a really lame week as far as like news like you said but you know to kind of echo what you said if you guys have not heard our chloe grant interview that we did uh that we released on monday be sure to go back and listen to that interview because it is wonderful we had such an awesome time on there chloe was such an absolute wonderful person to work with and talk to Josh and I both asked her a lot of burning questions that we had on our minds and you know we're, we still got questions because there's new things that are coming out that we're learning more and more about the F1 Academy. So if if that is something that you are definitely interested in and you want to learn more about, I highly suggest you go back, listen to that interview. The video of it will actually be on YouTube by this weekend. We had a few delays because of uh, editing. That'll be taken care of by this weekend. You know, I think it's time we, uh, we go back in time. Ooh, we go back in time. What are we going to do now? Well, I, I don't know, man. Like I'm thinking there's so many good places to go. There's there's so many good places to see. Uh, hold on one second. Hey, hey, Willem, Willem. What? What do you want? What? Do you- hey. Hey. Sorry. Come over here. Okay. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the show. Yeah. What What do you want? <laughs> We're Josh and I want to go back in time, but we don't really know where to go. And we, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, we can always go back to the 2008 season, you know, and talk about the whole Felipe Massa and uh, Hamilton. I feel like we need to go back a little bit further. What do you think? I think there's a lot of great stories in the past. I mean, the 2000s have some amazing stories, which we can spend years and years talking about, Uh, you know, that's true. 2005 obviously you know we look at the 2000 season and why that was significant for schumacher but you know what i i did realize like doing the last podcast one of the things that some folks have always asked me about is talking about characters in f1 and i was kind of thinking that you know having had a discussion with you guys it seems like you don't know anything about the greatest racing driver of all time and no it's not maldonado no it's not latifi they're in their special it's hackadin whatever sure whatever you believe kid you know like you you believe what Mika it, Hakkinen, we love you we do love mika hackenden now he's he's brilliant but connected to to hackenden i guess in some way i think we should talk about in my opinion and this is this pains me as a schumacher fan to admit this but in my opinion we should talk about the greatest racing driver of all time i'd like to tell you the story i guess of ayrton senna who I, I don't know how much you know about him, but I think it'd be a, a good two-episode story. Yeah, I think it would be great. You know, if it's your opinion that he's the greatest driver, I'm sure there's going to be some debate and stuff like that, but it's going to be an awesome story. I can't wait to hear it. All I will say about about that, Josh, is that 
it's obviously always been a debate. Like, who is the greatest racing right. driver of all time? Is it Lewis Hamilton? Is it Michael Schumacher? But I will tell you this. I When I grew up as a kid, I found out about Senna the wrong way, which is obviously that he was the last driver to pass away. And we'll get to that a little bit, obviously, later uh, through these two episodes. But I wasn't really convinced for a while. I thought, oh, it's just, you know, he's just a very quick driver. Woohoo. Then, of course, the Senna movie came out, which you can all obviously take a look at on Netflix if you have the time. It's a one hour, 40, 45 minute movie. Probably one of the greatest documentary movies of all time. I immediately reignited my fascination. I think it's Timothy Rubithan's book about Ayrton Senna, The Life of Ayrton Senna. It's a big book, it's like 600 pages. Wow. But, but it is, but I, after reading those books and doing enough of my research, I can safely quote Jeremy Clarkson where I can summarize Senna in basically one sentence, which is Senna was spectacular every single time he was in a Formula One car. He is the closest you can get to a driver being kind of like a messiah. You know, there is unnatural. You know, you think, you know, people are making comparisons to Max and Lewis to Ayrton Senna recently. Not even close in in some people's opinions, but I'm, See, I know, I know of Senna, but I, I feel like once we actually go back in time and kind of talk about this a little bit more, maybe maybe Josh and I will, will have a, a little bit of a better understanding and appreciation for Ayrton Senna. What do you think? See, so what I have to say about what Willem just said, he is a great driver, don't get me wrong, but it also could be just the different eras of drivers. Like Lewis Hamilton could be the greatest recent the driver. The greatest of the era. Right. And just because there's a lot of changes in the sport, a lot of changes with each car, every every era, right? I'm going to be excited to hear about how they drove, how they drove, how Senna just was able to be who he was on the track and off the track, right? It's just going to be an exciting story to get to know more of the Formula One. Whether you agree that he is the greatest driver of all time by the end of it, I leave it to both of you. But it is a fascinating story regardless. And anyone who wants to get into F1, I think, you know, you got to learn about Senna. So I present to you the big red button. Are you sure? Are you sure you're ready? Do we want to do this again? I don't want to. You push it. <laughs> push the damn button. Whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Whoa! Kind of walk us through where we are. Right. We are in Sao Paulo in on the 21st of March, 1960, when Ayrton Senna was born. You know, Brazil, relatively, you know, young at this point as a country, um, obviously, you know, known for some sports, mainly professional football, soccer. Uh, we'll call it soccer because we're Americans and whatever. <laughs> it is the original way of calling it. Um, Senna was born um, to, uh, to to a relatively large family, and, and, and his family was... was relatively well off i would say i wouldn't say they were like at the max level or the the charles leclerc level in terms of financials but well enough to be able to afford luxuries that most brazilians could not afford now i think it's really important to understand who senna was when senna was a kid he actually barely spoke at all and his teachers were actually really concerned for his health they thought he might be kind of have some mental issues and in this day and age he potentially would have been labeled as someone who might have had, you know, either Asperger's or autism in certain aspects. But as a kid, he was not a very verbal person. He was very introverted, I guess is what I, I, I'm coming more towards. But then his father took him to Interlagos, which is obviously the, the track that they still drive to today in Formula One. Like many Brazilian kids, he, he saw 
the Formula One. He got inspired and he was like, I want to get involved. His dad bought him a go-kart. He was too young to race go-karts at that point. So he just did a lot of like going after school, driving at the go-kart track next to the main circuit. One thing led to another. He does his first go-kart race. And fun fact, in those days, because he was so young, he could draw up from a hat his uh, his position on the grid, you know, with other kids. In those days, there was no qualifying session. They were just, they threw the kids onto a racetrack and this is, they kind of guessed. How young are we talking? We're talking about like maybe eight, ten years old. I mean, young in those days. Nowadays, it's like, that's like old for, for most yeah. racing drivers. He's got the late start for us nowadays absolutely but he got pole in his first ever grand prix and he actually led most of the race until he spun and this is where Senna the racing driver is born not because he was leading most of the race but it sums up kind of who he is as a person which is that he's he lost that race because of the rain and he did not know how to drive in the rain and so he every day after school despite the fact he hated the rain and he hated everything about it he would train and go-kart in the rain as much as he could he also was taught to learn how to build his own go-kart and have a very good understanding of how all that worked and senna's behavior in the classroom all of a sudden went from being this shy introverted kid to this brilliant soft-spoken but highly intelligent racing driver and an individual and and when he turned 18 which by then he was about, I think he went to actually university. I could be wrong here. He married at 18 years old to a, a very wealthy uh, family's uh, daughter. And um, he made this big decision to go race in Europe and drive Formula Fords. And he was very successful there, won everything, one race, fun fact. Uh, his engine was about to blow up because there was supposed to be some uh, duct tape to hold on to the radiator and what he would do while driving stick shift for us in the US with manual. He was sellotaping while racing for the win, uh, the, the radiator, oh my essentially. God. And and he was doing this one-handed, so basically no hand, yeah, oh, basically no-handed trying to fix this thing. And he actually went on to win the race uh, doing that. You know, this is like, <laughs> this is this is son of the racing That's driver. Insane. That is absolutely freaking insane. Um, and that's just who he was. He was immediately in the spotlight of a lot of drivers in 1983. He famously participated in that championship and had a great rivalry with Martin Brundle. Anyone else, we, we can cover that in another episode, but the 1983 Formula 3 World Championship was probably the most spectacular championship in the history of motorsport, even sometimes surpassing most Formula 1 championships. Um, it was brutal. It was fair. It was great racing politics on and off the track. And Martin Brundle proved why he's a brilliant driver. Senna proved why he's a brilliant driver. They both got junior drives and actually ended up the next season in 1984 driving in Formula One. Now, Senna was pretty Sigma about what he did in 1984. You see, the man had four offers from Formula One teams. The first offer was McLaren. The second offer was Williams, and the third offer was Brabham, all teams at this point that were world championship caliber teams. He declined every single one of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> he declined the three best teams in F1. Who did he go to? He went to a team called Tolman. Now, Tolman. 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 You've never heard of Tolman. Well, they're now Alpine, ironically. Really? They are Alpine now. But Tolman 
absolutely garbage. I think this was their first season, and he signed a two-year contract with them. And the reason he chose to draw for Tolman was a bit of a cocky reason, which was he he basically proclaimed that he didn't think he was good enough to drive for those those bigger teams. So he decided that, hey, you know, today's the day. Today's the day where I, you know, am going to, you know, learn for a year how to get good in F1, and hopefully I will have a career. Well, guess what? In 1984, he had a spectacular season in this crappy car, this car that was bottom of the grid. His teammate was like way off and uh, he had some incredible races. And most notably, the moment that Formula One or Senna really stepped into the scene was at the Monaco Grand Prix of that year. Hmm. So is there any questions at this point about like Senna? Didn't didn't he have some sort of like disability or at least climbing stairs and kind of like walking around at certain things like what was there anything that you knew about that yeah there were there was there's always been stories about like you know senna and kind of you know did he have some limitations essentially no one really knows like it's it's kind of been shrouded in some sort of mystery but i I will say that you know formula one was kind of his gatekeep away from um uh, from from the sport so so you know i it's really hard to say, I guess is what I'm I'm, I'm trying to allude at. Lots I actually did some fact-checking. past a lot of um, the, the, the issues. Senna that did attend have. college in Rio Branca in the San Paulo neighborhood. He graduated in 1977 with a grade 5 in physics and uh, had other grades in mathematics, chemistry, and English. Later enrolled in college and specialized in business administration, but dropped out mm. after three months with his grades amounting up to 68%. Cool. Um, well, there you go. You see, he was well, and so this is actually kind of important. I forgot to miss a really important part of the story, which actually is an important part also for the latter half of his 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 life. And actually, I can kind of relate a lot to the story based on my failed ventures in racing. But as in '81, he had a pretty successful year in Formula Ford. I think it was the 1600 series. His father says, enough's enough. You've had your fun, your playboy racing crap. You know, your wife wants to leave England. She's like ready to dump his ass. And Senna had a choice, you know, to go back home to Brazil, learn more business, do all that kind of stuff, or continue racing, but without his father's financials. And his father, the, his father, you need to understand, is an intelligent man, is a decent man, but deeply Catholic, but he especially was. He He really cared for his son not to do this type of Sport, and that's the thing about Senna. He's a very human individual. Yes, he has a lot of money, but he's not the type of person who was brought up with fantasies of what being a sports star really entailed or any of that type of stuff. He loved racing. He was a damn good, naturally born racing driver who just wanted to do the thing that he loved because it kind of got him out of the problems that he had with his family, which was a family that didn't want him to race. They didn't want to see him as a playboy, you know, and hanging around supermodels and, you know, smoking a ton of cigarettes and taking drugs, which was a big part of like the late 70s, even a bit into the 80s um, in the world of Formula One. So you can understand like this deeply Catholic, very conservative sort of view on a sport that is widely just seen as kind of a flamboyant sports star sort of environment. And so Senna going into 84 really changed the perspective of how racing drivers had to treat that. And so going back to Monaco, Monaco rating conditions, 
There are several world champions on the grid. KK Rosberg, the father of uh, Nico Rosberg. Uh, Nicky Lauda was on the grid. Alan Prost was on the grid with... A lot of the greats. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nelson Piquet was on the grid, uh, who we all hate. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> And uh, many, many other drivers of, of, of absolute top-tier caliber. Martin Brundle was there, too. Now, it's pouring with rain, and no one can see... Senna in a track where you cannot overtake these V6 turbos. They're quite wide cars, you know, compared to the cars that we have now. And so he passed everyone in front of him and actually did win the Monaco Grand Prix. But because of a rule that kind of Alan Prost sort of manipulated with the president of uh, of the FIA, Jean-Marie Balestre, it actually wound back the, the, the lap by one to give Alan Prost the win and Ayrton Senna would finish second. But it's the way that Senna sort of went through the field in the torrential rain in a car that was basically in the back of the grid. It really just changed the whole sport forever. People were like, this is insane. There's no way this crappy little car can basically win the Monaco Grand Prix. And all of a sudden, Senna was the face of Formula One. Literally from that race onwards, the spotlight was always on Senna. That's insane. That's like having to deal with all of that from your family, not wanting you to race, and then going on and being successful and then having the pressure of being successful in the career that your family doesn't want you to be in. I couldn't even imagine the pressure that he's feeling. Yeah, that, that's got to be some immense weight on his shoulders at this point in time. Um, what about, so let me ask you this question before we move in to the next, the next stage of his, his life. Um, was, he, was he a very social person or was he more kind of calm and collective like a more like shy personality because i've always i've always been told he was a more shy personality unless he was around his closer circle yeah so to understand the next part of his career it's actually ironic because that actually ties in perfectly that question to uh, the next part of his career Senna was a was two characters off the track a gentle quiet soft-spoken deeply catholic christian Formula One driver. He felt that, you know, he, he was not very interesting outside of the sport. He sort of played with RC cars, drove go-karts, did a lot of business deals and all kinds of stuff. Not very, not a very interesting life. So very simple, upper class, middle class sort of lifestyle that he had was he's very like conservative, I guess, in many ways. On the grid, on the racetrack, he was a bit of an asshole to a lot of people. He was very cold, not someone who hung around with a lot of people. There's actually a documentary he's watching recently where they're doing a photo shoot with Senna, and this is later on in his career, in 1993, and he's sitting around the whole team. He does his camera shots, and he just leaves. He just walks back to the garage and just sort of is ready to go testing again. Like He's super cold and and notoriously manipulative, and he... He was a bit of a diva, I guess, in some way. He knew he was very good, in the same way that Michael Jordan believed that he was the, he was very good in basketball. But I think the difference between those two characters, which they have a little bit of alignment, Senna felt he was touched by God. He genuinely believed that God had put him on this earth to be a Formula One driver and to be the best, and that anyone else was the enemy. And this is really important, because the one thing I will say about the, the Senna film, which everyone sort of relates to when we talk about Ayrton Senna, is that he kind of uses that as an excuse to be a... And so in 1984, at the, towards the end of that season, when he's doing a deal with Lotus, you know, he signs that deal, and Tolman is pissed off because he signed a two-year deal, and he has to fulfill that contract. He says, f*** you, and then what Tolman do 
because he acted like such a brat around them, was they did not allow him to race at the Italian Grand Prix, where they were projected to actually have a very good car. He could have probably won a race or at least been on the podium. Senna comes back and does the, I believe, the Dutch Grand Prix and the Portugal Grand Prix. Actually, it was the last Dutch Grand Prix for a very long time. And he gets a podium, and that's really about it. First time at and Tolman. Now, he goes and drives for Lotus, and 1985, 86, and 87 are those years, and you can sum them up individually very simply. In 1985, he had a very strange relationship with his teammate, which kind of summarizes a lot of like who, who he is. Elio D'Angelo was his teammate, who was this guy who played beautifully the piano, very much flamboyant, Italian, all that kind of stuff. Brilliant racing driver, probably would have stayed in Formula One for a long time, but 85, he and Senna do not get along. And most of the time was because Senna was so brilliant as a racing driver and did so many incredible things that season for Lotus that Elio could never do, including, by the way, Senna winning the Portuguese Grand Prix, which would end up being his first ever Grand Prix. And I believe he lapped everyone in that race. Like in the torrential rain, everyone is spinning. Senna's the only driver who doesn't spin the whole Grand Prix, which is just, again, a typical Ayrton Senna story. You know, how does he win? He wins being the only one who doesn't make mistakes. Oh, and by the way, he's lapped everyone, essentially. But Elio, but he uses the politics to kind of get a lot of leverage on, with Renault to get better a better engine deal. And so Elio DeAngelis gets removed from the team. That pisses off Elio because Elio's like, hey, I should be in that place, but whatever. In the end of 1985... You may have noticed that gold livery, the gold and black livery of the John Player special livery that everyone knows the Lotus really for. That livery was tied to a contract that they had to have Lotus, a British driver. Enter Derek Warwick, who uh, is a steward every once in a while at the Grand Prix weekends. Derek Warwick, Hamilton of his generation at that time, really came in fast, hot, quick, really had it all. He was going to be, he was already guaranteed a seat at the Lotus team. But Senna, did not want that. He did not want the one of the fastest drivers, potentially a guy who could be at his same pace driving in the same team. He wanted to be numero uno and the other guy to be numero dos. And Lotus did not want to do that. They wanted to keep it equal footing. So Senna said, well, then you're just going to leave me and I'm going to take all the money that, that I put into this team because Lotus did not have a lot of money. They were a team that was kind of going into a downfall at this point and they were about to lose the Renault engines which were very powerful but unreliable as hell and so they decided to say well you know we're going to stick with Senna we don't care if the 86 our title sponsor doesn't sponsor us after the 86 season so Derek Warg no longer gets to drive in that team they get jo Johnny Dumfries is his name he's a Scottish guy very nice guy terrible racing driver <laughs> like he was not a particularly good good teammate for uh for Ayrton Senna and Senna would end on fighting for the title in 86 and it would be a four-way title between him PK Mansell and Prost Senna would be the first to be eliminated from that title fight I think at two Grand Prix before because the reputation at this point for Lotus was that they had a great car that was actually the fastest car on the grid but the engine would blow up before the end of the race or it'd run out of fuel and so Senna kind of was having enough of this. McLaren ended on winning the championship in 86. It's pretty insane, though. Like, in the short amount of time, you kind of get the idea of who Senna the character is. This, he's a brutal racing driver. Very fast, very talented, does the impossible, finds ways to creatively destroy the relationships of Tolman, his first teammate at Lotus, and not even a teammate who ended up being his teammate at Lotus. Johnny Dumfries gets sacked as well at the end of that season. 
And he finds a way to convince Honda to become an engine supplier of Lotus. On a one-year extension, Senna's basically loaned out for that year. Senna wins in 87, notably with the Camel cigarette tobacco-sponsored Lotus, the Monaco Grand Prix. And that season's kind of whitewash. McLaren, you know, Williams dominate the season kind of in the same way that, like, you know, what's going on currently in our season, where basically, you know, Williams are just sort of, no one can touch them. You know, Mansell loses the title to PK. PK wins his final championship. And this is where I want to hard stop there because there's probably a lot of questions about what happened here before I get to the next phase of his life. Well, it almost doesn't even make sense that it's like he has an alter ego is what it sounds like. Right. And it's just crazy to think like such a Catholic based, humble dude outside of racing just gets in the zone and just F's everything up (laughs) for a lack of better term and does, does what he does. He's, He's he's the type of person that I feel like he would literally walk away from an explosion and not nothing would touch him. He would he would just remain unfazed. Like the the slow motion. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a great way to explain him is that he is two different types of characters, you know. And and that's what I was alluding to that Senna was a very gentle, kind individual, kind of boring outside of F1 and like I said deeply religious, but then on the track, god, he was a like, you know, like, especially when you, if you want, read Tom Ruthen's book about Ayrton Senna, because it really goes into more detail about, like, his relationship with, with Lotus and with Tolman. And it was kind of similar to kind of Alonso's relationship with all the teams he's driven for, where he kind of burns the bridge permanently to go to any of those teams, just because, you know, he is, he sees himself as better than the team. And he wants to get the team to his level versus Alonso, where he thinks it's always the team's fault for his shortcoming. Which is why I think the two are kind of very distant apart, because I think the one thing Senna was very good at was that although he wasn't the best teammate to have in Formula One at times, he was so good at also bringing the expectations to the team to deliver at the highest level. And I think that's why Senna was such a brilliant racing driver. And this is actually where Senna's career changes in 87, because guess who approaches him in at towards the middle part of 1987. So before we move on from Lotus, um, in 87, when Honda joined him or whatever, they're running the V6s, right? Correct. And, you know, the 1,500 horsepower engines, like, they're complete monsters. Six-speed gearbox, uh, power-to-weight ratio, God knows what that was in those days. Um, Yeah, insane machines. Brutal, insane machines. like little fat vehicles. They were very fat, low... Um, very, very. Good. Oh God, those things! Are, I'm looking, I'm looking at these cars just drive by, like right now as we're seeing them. God, it, it's it's just touching my heart. Special, like I, it's special. You know, in the sound, just listen to the sound. In, in my opinion, the, the the normally aspirated engines sounded so much better after that. But I will say, the V6 sounds and. There's a great clip, if you ever want to watch this, this is clip of Senna and Adelaide doing a qualifying lap, which I think could perfectly summarize Ayrton Senna, the racing car, the racing car driver. This guy, no power steering, manual gearbox, a car that is not designed to be running on the top half of the grid. He is trying to qualify for pole position. And Senna, the car is dancing, guys. Like He is dancing all over the place. And like you don't know why he's, he's not crashing to a wall, but everyone who sees that clip 
just loses it when they're just like, oh my god, how this this man is is on another planet. He is he's driving a car that is not designed to do what it's supposed to do right now, and he is not going to give up. You know, he is so tenacious, especially as a qualifier. And that's kind of Senna's reputation actually at this point. So don't forget, before Schumacher broke his record in 2006 at the Imola Grand Prix, ironically. Senna was, by some margin, the greatest qualifier of all time. Still to this day, I think he's the greatest qualifier of all time. I think Lewis Hamilton's probably second. Um, but Senna is a brilliant qualifier. He did these Banzai one laps that are in, enriched in history of just being able to shock every driver around him. If he had more reliability with that Lotus in 85, 86, 87, he probably would be a five-time world champion. I genuinely, to this day, I genuinely believe he would have been up there with even better numbers than what he actually have. It's just that car let him down in terms of reliability. And like everything in Formula One, you're only as good as your car sometimes. Right. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier with like how the cars affected your results in, the, right. in a certain era. Right. Exactly. And, you know, and, and that's kind of like... Well, at this point, he hasn't had a world championship, right? Well, he has not won anything at this point, and he blames Lotus for his shortcomings. So guess what actually happens, though? Ayrton Senna does something quite crazy with Ron Dennis. Ron Dennis um, and him sit down, and they negotiate a deal to get him and Honda into McLaren. Now, McLaren hasn't won a championship in 87. Uh, I believe at this point, John Watson's at the team. Good driver, not a great driver. Alan Prost is, the, is his teammate. Alan Prost is at this point one of the greatest racing drivers of all time. He's won two championships, I think, at this point. Um, so, you know, Prost actually insists that Ayrton Senna becomes his teammate. He says, if you want to dominate the championship, you need to get a guy like Senna. You need to get a guy like me to be in a room together and start, um, you know, fighting for titles. And that's exactly what happens. He Senna has a good relationship with Honda, so Senna pulls the Honda relationship to McLaren. McLaren see it as like a done deal. You've also got Gordon Murray, one of the greatest car designers of all time. He designed the McLaren F1 supercar, if you know what that is, um, which is the greatest supercar of all time. And combine that with Honda, which was the best engine. It had won the Constructors' Championship in 1987 with, uh, with Williams. Williams lose that engine deal, actually. In, in fact, that engine deal migrates exactly to McLaren. And 88 is where Senna, for the first time in his Formula One career, is actually fighting for the title. And he gets to drive the greatest racing car of all time, the McLaren MP44. Now, do you, any of you know who, what the McLaren MP44 is? Um, no, but um, it still has that V6 turbo, I'm assuming, because that's what everybody's running, right? And it has a Honda engine. Yeah, it was running a Honda engine, and I, I believe... Okay, now this is this is just basically from what I know off the top of my dome. It's basically one of the first McLarens that provided Senna and and Prost basically because because Senna and Prost were both teammates in this yeah, season. Yeah, so correct? Senna and Prost in nineteen um, in 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 nineteen eighty eight become teammates. The McLaren MP four four is the culmination of everything that Ron Dennis has ever dreamed. How do I create the greatest racing team of all time? You get the consistency and the simple, beautiful, smooth driving style of Alan Prost and his gentleness and easy-to-work attitude. It was very articulate. You've got the fiery rage of Ayrton Senna, this deeply devoted racing driver, naturally talented. You get the greatest car designer of all time, Gordon Murray. You get the best engine in Honda. And you 
and you create a team under Ron Dennis with his OCD to create this masterpiece that is the McLaren MP44. And the McLaren MP44 was actually late to the test. It did not arrive in the test until uh, to preseason testing in Imola. It was the last car to arrive. And to tell you how good this car ended up being, Senna goes out and does one lap with it, drives back into the pit lane. That's his first time ever driving this car, right? Is is at that preseason test. And he shakes his head and is just like traumatized. And the McLaren mechanics go up to him and go, what's going on? Like, why are you so like, what's what's happening? Senna just looks at him. And he says, this thing is quick. And you know how quick this thing is? 15 out of 16 races quick that uh, this car wins. It only loses Holy one race. Insane. It loses only one race because one car hit him at the uh, the old turn one of Monza. All right, that's the only reason the McLaren lose one race that whole season. Aside from that, it's also the oh one God. of the only cars to have turbos in the back of it. Um, they had a choice that season. You can go normally aspirated or you can go turbo. The last year, the turbos came until obviously 2014. And McLaren just dominate, and it becomes sort of a chess match in the same way that Rosberg and Hamilton have a chess match in 2014 is a chess mass match between the two drivers. And it's just, it's epic battle. And Senna ends up winning his first title in Japan as a result of it. He has an incredible season, minus Monaco, where that's kind of the race where it's sort of changed for Ayrton Senna. So Monaco is the right. When you think about the 88 season, people actually don't think about Senna's first championship. They think about what happened in Monaco, which to high level, Senna does something that no driver to this day has ever done since. And again, I have to emphasize his teammate is Alan Prost. This is not a guy who's slow. All right. This is this is this is like he's only like maybe a tenth difference with Senna every once in a while. Monaco in those days was a man's man's track. You cannot mess up at that track. So Senna dominates. In qualifying, he does an incredible lap that gets him into pole position by one and a half seconds. One and a half seconds on a tiny little track like Monaco is beyond insane. And the whole race, Prost does this amazing thing. So Prost knows he's not going to win this race on raw pace. He falls behind one of the Ferraris, I believe, in the beginning. He's actually third for most of the race. Gets past him because of the pit stops. Tries to... chase Senna down, but Prost is, this is where their relationship sort of becomes frictionized, because what happens is Prost sort of is like 45, 50 seconds behind Senna. Senna's taking it easy at this point, and he goes for the fastest lap, and Senna gets told this. Senna then goes for the fastest lap and gets it, and they sort of trade fastest laps, and at one point, the team tell him, you've got to slow down. You've got to just like, he's not coming for you. There's no way he's coming for you. He's not getting past you. Don't worry about it. But Senna doesn't think like that because Senna is not human compared to you and I, you know, where we can manage, where we know our own limitations. Senna doesn't have a limitation because he's on another planet. And then he crashes at Portier, I think around lap 60 of the race and loses the Grand Prix. He just blows it. It is the biggest, like, it is like Super Bowl, you know, when the Falcons and the, and the Patriots, like, you know, the Falcons had this incredible lead and then the Patriots end up winning it um, like a few years ago. It's like that. Like, it's it's shocking. It's Monaco. But uh, that's how he loses it. But it becomes a motivating factor to kick Prost's ass from that moment onwards. And he did. He destroyed him. So at this point, Senna and Prost are kind of on equal terms. At the Imola Grand Prix in 89, um, an incident happens and involves that Senna sh- was not allowed to pass Prost after a restart. And the, they had a team order. Again, the 89, the McLaren MP45 was also a very brilliant card. Basically won everything as well. 
So Senna and Prost do not get along really from that Grand Prix onwards because Senna disobeyed orders. And Senna does the exact same thing that he did in Lotus, except this time he starts crying. And he uses that as his emotion as an excuse to kind of get what he wants with the team. And he finds ways for Honda to sort of favor him the better engines and give him the best, you know, settings and all that. Well, Prost is left in the dust. And Prost has had enough of this. You know, he's like, dude, we get it. You're a great driver. Like, I'm literally trying to win the championship, too. I'm equally as good as you. And he was equally as good as Senna. Don't forget. It was very close between those two. Bar Monaco, honestly. And to be honest, Senna does not have a particularly great 89 season. You know, Prost actually has the better season that time but it all comes loggerhead at the japanese grand prix and this is very important prost has to win the championship can win the championship in in, in 89 at this point he's decided to leave mclaren by the way he's fed up of ron dennis ron dennis historically does not know as we know from our previous classics episode how to manage ayrton senna uh, or and and alan prost and and the two drivers just don't get along so just funnily enough Prost actually does this thing that winds up Ron Dennis, where he gives one of the championship trophies that he wins in Monza to the Tifosi, because at this point he had signed a deal to go drive with Ferrari. And Prost just sort of finds creative ways to sort of piss off Ron by doing that, because Ron likes to keep every trophy that they have won, including the driver trophies, is the only team that honestly does that in Formula One. It's part of his OCD sort of attitude that he has. So Prost can win the championship in 89 in Japan. As long as Senna stays behind him at the at the whole track. Now Senna gets pole position, Lute falls behind Prost. Prost defends Senna like crazy throughout the most of the race. In lap 47, Senna makes a move and actually is clean ahead of him by the time he gets into the penultimate corner of the of the Suzuka track. Prost turns right into Senna. Oh my god. Gets DNF'd. Senna finds a way to get back onto the racetrack, pits. Is now like almost like what, like 10 seconds behind uh, Larini or some, Lanini or something like that, wins the race with two laps to go. But here's where it gets insane. There was a rule that was made up on the spot, doesn't this sound familiar, by the FIA at this point, the FISA, with Jean-Marie Balestra basically accusing uh, Senna of cheating uh, for taking the escape route, despite the fact Senna, like, Prost crashed into him. And so the podium procedure is completely delayed because Balestra decides all of a sudden out of nowhere to give Senna a penalty and disqualify him from the race. So guess who becomes world champion? Alan Prost. Oh my gosh. Just like that. In front of the whole crowd of Japanese fans. And that's how Prost wins the 89 championship. That is insane. That is completely, it is the most barbaric and the most insane way to win a championship. And Prost is obviously very happy. Balestra is very happy. Senna is not. Neither is McLaren. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure there was some heated, heated discussion after that. Definitely. Oh yeah, but wait, there's more. 1990. Senna and Prost are fighting for the championship again. This time in two different teams. Prost has got Mansell in his team. Uh, Senna has Berger, Gerhard Berger, on his team, who's also a great driver. Uh, the two are fighting for the championship. Now, the other way around happens. Senna can win the championship if Prost stays behind him. And Senna, that whole season was kind of a weird, funky year. He still hadn't really gone over from the shit that happened in 89. Um, One of the drivers at the URF race has a a horrific crash where Senna literally goes onto the racetrack as a, you know, and this is typical Senna. Senna would do this a lot in his career. When drivers were injured on the track or a horrible accident happened, Senna would take a medical car 
with Sir Sid Watkins, who becomes an important factor at 94 when we get to that episode. But basically, Senna goes onto the racetrack with Sid Watkins, and they have a, a conversation, and, and they, he tries to help this driver into the ambulance and takes care of him, and then goes out and does an insane lap that blows everyone out of the water. And it was a very tense year. Prost is having some problems with Ferrari himself, but Ferrari have built a very good car that season, a beautiful car. The 1990 Ferrari is gorgeous. But again, roll reversal, Suzuka. Now, in those days, the racing pole position mark was on the right-hand side of the grid. As you both know, the best side of the grid is always on the, the side of the grid where the racing line is. For some reason, Suzuka was all the way on the right. And Balestra promised that he would change the racing grid spot to move back to the left. But Balestra did not do that. He was trying to find a way to allow Prost to basically be somewhere in the front of the grid. So combined with the frustration between these two drivers, what Senna does is he basically, at the first corner, just goes straight into Prost. He doesn't even turn right. You can see it in the footage. He basically goes straight into Prost, and then he becomes world champion. <laughs> Senna becomes champion for the second time in his career. Of course, you know, because he doesn't have a good relationship really with the press, Senna, compared to, to Prost, everyone is sort of like going after Senna because he obviously could have killed Alan Prost. He's, it's still dangerous in those days. I mean, it's still dangerous now, but it was really dangerous in those days. And that turn one is fast right-hander. So that's what happened. And ultimately... Um, it actually really devastated Senna's career. And he was not proud of it, weirdly enough. Like, at first, like, there's interviews with him where he's like, ah, you know, uh, yeah, it's great to win the championship, but he would actually want, uh, go on to admit that it was a complete mistake and one of the greatest regrets of his career. I mean, rightfully so, but it, it, again, it comes back down to that competitive mindset, just trying to do what it takes to win, and if he had that alter ego, it doesn't surprise me, yeah. I can understand that. Like, I, I know you just mentioned that he, you know, looking back on it, he, he wasn't too fond of, of that incident. But is this something that he would later go on and talk about, you know, in interviews and things like that? Yeah. So Senna, this is this is, I think, where like we go back to like kind of the dialogues we all three have about like why not many people can relate to Max. When Max won the championship in 21 and 22. He never came across as a guy who had any regrets about what happened, despite all the bad that he did. And Senna, he did do some bad on and off the track, nowhere near as much as Max. But Senna was a kind of guy, maybe it was because of his upbringing, maybe it was because of just who naturally he is as a person. He was not particularly content with the decisions he made. He ultimately admitted many times actually afterwards that, yeah, he made a mistake and that's not the way he wants to be remembered. He would definitely not be forgotten for the stuff that he did but at the same time he was remembered as just being an exceptionally quick racing driver and very much a thoughtful individual in that case would you say that he he particularly like cared about people like in a more genuine sense after or was it mainly like a facade senna was probably one of the most caring people you can imagine in brazil he's actually mainly known for being very charitable uh, Senna gave away millions to unfortunate kids. And even to this day, despite his, his death and kind of the Senna name kind of fading away in, in, in an aspect, although it's still very present off. Ayrton Senna actually goes on to do a lot of charitable things. Uh, he creates an educational program called the Senna. Uh, Senina, I don't know how to say it correctly, cartoon show in, in the late 90, in the early part of, of 93. And he does a lot of stuff. Like, he's a very hospitable and kind and thoughtful person. And, and like I said, as we talked about the, you know, 
what happened in Yerev in 1990, would go into the middle of a racetrack and go help another driver if he has to. In 92, he does that too. In fact, it happens right in front of him. He closes the engine, runs towards cars that are racing back to the pits to go save another driver. Um, that's just who he is. You know, Senna is a wonderful human being. As a person, there is not many people, even like, you know, people talk about like Lewis Hamilton, where they talk about, oh, you know, he's a nice guy and everything. Lewis is nowhere near as charitable as Ayrton Senna. You know, Lewis is, is, is not like that. Most of these drivers aren't. Senna is a good man. He's a genuinely good man who delivers through action. And same with, you can make the argument also for Schumacher, where Schumacher was ruthless and kind of a, uh, in, on the racetrack, but off the track, a good person who cared for, uh, for a lot of people. In fact, he made the largest donation during the Thailand Earth, uh, tsunami in 2004-2005. The only athlete to send a ton of his own personal fortune to, to, to save the innocent people in Thailand. So, you know, overall, yeah, Sen is an incredible human being. Superhuman, one would argue. Wow, that's, that's insane. Hey, oh, hold on. It looks like the, uh, the button's uh, beeping again. Josh, Josh, can we turn, can we turn this thing off for a Oh, wait a minute. It says, it says we got like five minutes. Sure. It's actually very simple. So 91, you know, McLaren end up only winning the first six or seven races of the season. After that, the Williams team actually dominate the latter half. But Nigel Mansley, who's leading the team at this point, had left Ferrari, is not really like ready to win this title, makes a mistake. Senna goes on to win his third title a season later. And that, that 91 season, 92, things change. Ferrari and Prost are no longer a thing. Prost takes a sabbatical for the year. Mansell dominates the 92 championship because that car has the act of suspension. Then at the end of 92, Prost actually goes to Williams. Senna is trying to get into Williams, but in Prost's contract, it said that he couldn't, he had to be the only driver driving for that team. So, and especially, and more specifically, Senna could not be his teammate. So Senna cannot drive for the Williams team. And so he's actually playing with other teams and even his own team. So he's kind of done with McLaren at this point because McLaren had a bad 92 season. Honda leaves the sport. So McLaren have to make a decision with an engine manufacturer they want. They do a third-party deal or a second-party deal with Ford, which they would have less powerful engines than that of Benetton. By this point, Schumacher is in Formula One and Benetton and Schumacher are kind of becoming a big thing at this point, despite it being schumacher's second or third season and so things are are not looking good for senna but ultimately he finds a way to do a deal in 93 uh with mclaren on a race by race basis he makes a ton of money we're basically you know he doesn't sign a one-year contract he signs a, a contract basically every grand prix to participate which is more expensive for a team and more you know it's great i think it's like 1.5 or 1 million a race for god's sake you know it's like a ton of money <laughs> ton of money and that's excluding all the sponsorship stuff so it doesn't and, and senna goes on to have a great 93 season actually uh, the mclaren mp4 8 is actually a very good car it just was not good enough to beat that williams which was basically the same williams from 92 prost actually gets booted out of williams to make way for senna and so prost is actually forced out of retirement because senna found a way to get into the team and kick prost out it's kind of similar to what oscar piastri did to ricardo in a way where basically piastri found a way to twist the arm of uh of zach brown to give him the the, the deal and that's basically what happens and and this leads to senna leaving mclaren that famous photo of senna and prost and damon hill on the podium because it was the last time prost and senna 
would ever be on a podium together. And actually, that is the final race Senna ever wins a Grand Prix. And that's, I think, the perfect place where we can stop the story, because after this, it becomes one of the most tragic stories of all time. Yeah. Perfect timing, too. The yeah, I think, go, it, the I think it definitely is time to head back. But... You definitely were right. I, I'm gaining an appreciation for how brilliant and how amazing Senna was as a driver, you know, just going and looking at this, you know, back in a time perspective of, you know, like all of his, his trials and things that he had to go through and, and just everything that's going on. And, and there's still more to go through. Like, that's what I'm excited for. Josh, what do you, what do you think? I'm getting that appreciation. Like, obviously, we already knew he was a great driver, but just the way that he maneuvered the ins and outs of the motorsport itself outside of the cockpit, donating to Brazil and to the poor and whatnot, and also just being able to negotiate contracts, like getting a $1 million race to race basis. You got to be able to have you like negotiating skills at top tier, know what the hell you're doing, being able to build that relationship with people and quite frankly, to be kind of manipulative uh, at some level. I was going to say, he's got, he's got those businessman skills. It also helps that he had a father who was a very business-oriented guy. So I would say, you know, like, there's a lot of those arguments and statements were true. But yeah, Senna was an intelligent and brilliant racing driver, the likes that no one had ever seen. And he was exciting on track. He was very interesting off track and very charitable, as we know. But as I said, 94 becomes a cataclysm all that happens afterwards well i'm excited for you to come back uh next time and tell us the rest of the story like it's gonna be quite an amazing event or series yeah i can't wait for the next one if you have it i'm like super stoked for that interesting can't wait i mean i mean in a sense of like i i want to know about the ending and like not in the sense of like a a bad way but like i want to know Oh, curiosity. Yes, yeah, like, yeah. I'm, I I don't actually fully know, like, I've never seen the Senna film, which, you know, I'm, you know, I'm gonna get all these stones thrown at me, like, oh, boo, but you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna chuck them right back at you, because I'm, I'm learning, I'm gonna learn today. Honestly, the Senna film, just in general, and we'll talk about this probably in the next episode, but the, the, the Senna film is very pro-Senna, so it's very biased towards Prost, because Prost was not really a bad guy, honestly. Senna made him out as if he was a villain, and Brazilian fans kind of did some pretty terrible things towards Prost most of the time. I think Senna was was a man who, who went through a lot in his career, had a very uh, crazy political career, and kind of sparked this whole beauty of Formula One and politics, because he was so brilliant, and he, he managed all of that so effortlessly and so kindly. And I do recommend people taking a look at some of his interviews that he did with um, with the press. He was a very gentle character, very soft-spoken and uh, and just a brilliant man. No, I, I mean, I definitely would agree and kind of piggybacking off of what Ryan was saying, like, I'm not afraid to learn on air. Like, that's what's going to make this like, our relationship grow, our community grow, knowing that we're vulnerable, right? Yeah. And also, like, and being real, a part of this community, yeah, being real, being getting all this set up so that we can learn, especially for people that are learning with us, it makes them that much more interactive, I guess, in a way. Yeah, and and that, that's what I love about telling the story, because it does make you realize how human it is. And notice how, like, you know, we go from the beginning of this episode to where we are now, how we 
we've we've talked about kind of who Senna the person is and how genuinely when you even compare it to other drivers how how human he was very human he went through a lot of things that you and i and a lot of people have gone through in our lives in a sense where pressure from our parents pressure from you know society pressure in the way to perform you know he did not know what he was doing you know also at the same time yeah he was a brilliant racing driver but he made mistakes he regretted them and he regretted them in ways that were very relatable so yeah i think you know i think you're a hundred percent right there yeah, most definitely. We've got another episode of this coming, so you guys better strap yourselves in, because I know that when we go back in time again to kind of sort of finish out the story of this, I, I'm excited. Like, I, I really want to know more and more about this and gain a, gain a more fonder appreciation of Senna. Josh, Willem, thank you. Thank you so much for taking Josh and I through this uh, time travel experiment. Because every time we use this button, there's some new things that happen and there's some weird things that happen. So let's hope that the next time we use this, nothing else weird happens. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, thank you, Willem, for all of your knowledge as always and helping us learn along with our community. Yeah. Everything, the, the opinions, everything that's going on, the, the facts, the details, we love it. Um, and I hope our viewers love it. You guys, you guys, uh, definitely are bringing a bigger part to this community than we know. And just just to clarify, as we close, close things out, be sure to join the Discord. <laughs> and look through the Patreon. There's a lot of content yes. in there. Uh, this episode, It's coming on there, too. Yes, this episode will be cut down a little bit, but if you want the full, uncut, um, <laughs> explicit version... The raw... It'll be out The there. raw emotion of Willem. The raw emotion and passion that we've got in this episode. This is all going to be uncut. So you will see everything uncut on the Patreon. So be sure the Chloe Grant interview uncut is on there. So be sure to go and check that out. Strap yourselves in. We're in for a wild ride. All right. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Apex F1 podcast. Bye. Stay turned. Do it for Dale. <laughs> ha!